and welcome to another episode of Bookends, the podcast for writers and book lovers. I'm Philippa Moore and today's guest needs no introduction, but that's never stopped me before. It's Sunday Times bestselling author Lisa Jewell, author of Ralph's Party, which was the bestselling debut novel of 1999. And more recently, she's the author of Before I Met You, which is her latest book published this year by Random House. I first became aware of Lisa and her work, in other words, became a huge fan, when I moved to the UK five years ago and I saw a poster at a tube station for what was then her latest novel, 31 Dream Street. And I was very intrigued and I went out and procured myself a copy pretty much immediately. And ever since, I've just read everything that Lisa has ever written. I think I'd read a book about paint drying if she wrote it. Lisa's books are concerned very much with the stuff of life, you know, love, loss, families, friendships, growing up, growing old, growing apart. But I I think they also celebrate the magical connectedness of humanity, you know, the happy coincidences in life that just give it so much joy and, and meaning. And her books do make for very compulsive reading indeed. And Lisa is not only one of the most popular authors in the UK, but she's also an incredibly lovely and down-to-earth woman. And her story of how she became a writer could almost have come out of one of her own books. So who better to tell you than the lady herself? Here is the recording of our chat when I caught up with Lisa a few weeks ago at her home in North London. Lisa, welcome and thank you very much for joining me. A pleasure. I thought perhaps we'd start by perhaps you telling the listeners a bit about how you got started on your writing career because I mean every writer's got a great story of how they yeah how they got started and well, I think yours is particularly well, my, yeah mine's got the fair, the fairy tale element to it mm, definitely um, in that I didn't have this sort of overwhelming ambition I didn't have a grand plan everything just sort of seemed to to unfold in quite a magical way. I clearly had interests, an interest in the idea of being a writer because I'd um, been doing a creative writing evening class, but that was more as something to sort of, you know, entertain myself rather than because I had any ambitions in that in that direction. And then shortly after I finished this class, which was a very positive thing, the class, I got lots of positive feedback from the from the teacher and from other people on the course. I got made redundant. Um, and I also read High Fidelity by Nick Hornby, which was the first time I'd ever read a book that made me think that you could write a book when you were relatively young and inexperienced um, and that people would want to listen to your voice, uh, the, the voice of a young person. So everything just sort of conspired to bring me to this point where I was sitting by a swimming pool with my Australian friend, uh, Yasmin, talking about what I was going to do now that I didn't have a job. And she said, um, what would be your, your dream, your fantasy? I said, well, I wouldn't mind writing a book, you know, like Nick Hornby's book. And she said, well, just do it. She said, if you start it, I'll take you out. I should write three chapters. I'll take you out for dinner to your favourite restaurant. So I got back from holiday and I started the three chapters and I gave them to Yasmin. And she took me out for dinner to my favourite restaurant. But she also made me send them to some agents, which was something I hadn't considered doing um, because I just thought this was this was just a sort of novelty, something I'd done for a bit of fun. 
and I did send it out to 10 agents and I got nine rejection letters and then two months later I got a rather terse letter from the last agent saying it would need an awful lot of work but she'd like to see the rest. <laughs> um, encouraging then? It was, well I didn't see it as encouraging, it was actually my husband who said do you realise how many people get a letter like that from an agent, what a tiny percentage mm. and you absolutely have to finish this book. Uh, at which point he very kindly offered to let me come and live with him so I didn't need to pay rent anymore and he said I could use his computer so I spent the next year finishing the book and working part-time uh, so I had a job for two and a half days a week and wrote for two and a half days a week at the end of the year I gave the manuscript back to the terse agent and then it all just exploded into this absolute crazy dreamlike scenario of talk of bidding wars and film rights and suddenly I had a two book deal with Penguin um, for more money than it would have taken me 10 years to earn the amount of money they were offering <laughs> to pay me for two books um, and suddenly I just found myself with a with a book deal and a published book which um, was Rouse Party which was my first novel which was the book that I started writing for Yasmin on the bet. And it happened to be the best-selling debut novel of the year it came out, which was 1999. So the whole thing started from a vague flicker of interest in the concept of writing a contemporary novel. Um, and two years later into having the best-selling debut novel of the year. So it was quite, it was quite a remarkable sequence of events. It is the stuff that you read about in yeah. books, really, isn't it? Yes, and I think I think some people have this um, misconception that in order to be a published author, you need to have done an English degree or know somebody in publishing or have been a journalist. And I think it's always encouraging for people who are setting out on the path of writing a book to hear that sometimes you can just be a secretary <laughs> who had a conversation with a friend and, you know... And, and, and it, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to have any um, roots in that world. Nice. You can you can just barge straight in. And, <laughs> and serendipity can play a part. Absolutely, really. yes, yeah. serendipity certainly can. So have you written a book a year ever since? With my first publisher, Penguin, I was writing a book every 18 months and that was mainly because my editor at Penguin wanted me to have babies. <laughs> so she kept sort of putting all this extra space into my contracts so that I could take time out to have babies. But since I've had my babies and um, I now have a different publisher and we went into that publishing deal knowing that it was going to be a book a year. So ever since then I've been writing a book a year. So you've had... 11 books? Ele is that right? 11 books. Is that... I don't know. Is that right? I can't remember. I think it's either 10 or 11. Or the one I'm just about to finish is the 11th. I've lost track. Oh, well, <laughs> clearly my status as number Double one figures. fan is in <laughs> jeopardy now because I don't... I can't remember off the top of my head. But, um, but I mean, you've certainly been quite prolific in your 13 yes. years it, uh, it on probably, the scene. Yeah, it probably feels more like that to somebody looking in. Because it's, it's like when you meet someone and they say they're pregnant and then it feels like they've had their baby two minutes later. Yeah. Whereas for them, it feels like they've been pregnant forever. And it's that sort of thing when you're looking in, it feels like I'm probably more prolific than I am. From my perspective, I feel like I, it's been 12 years and I've written 10 or 11 books. And it feels like I've been working slowly and steadily rather than bam, 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 popping them out. So it doesn't feel like quite the whirlwind as it might seem from the outside. 
Well, your books all seem to have, even though they're all very different, they all seem to have similar themes yeah. in that they all have a central character or characters that have all got a really, really interesting backstory. And then that just slowly comes out as the novel progresses. Yes. And your novels just seem to have everything. There's love stories, there's loss, there's fame and fortune, there's religious nutters, <laughs> there's, um, you know, the perils of motherhood and single parenthood um, for men and women. You, you just seem to have a bit of everything and, and something for everyone. Do, do you write from life as, as you've lived it and the world as you've observed it? Or, yeah, I would or... say the, the, the latter, not the former. The world as I've observed it. I mean, I would say I've done two, three autobiographical novels. The first one, Ralph's Party, was definitely about my experience of life and falling in love and sharing flats and working silly jobs. Boots and Joy, which was my fourth novel, was um, I put in my first marriage into that book. Um, and also a lot more of my experiences of living in London and, and um, again, flat sharing and strange people. And then After the Party, the sequel to Ralph's Party, was very much about my experiences of having a second child and having problems within your relationship and struggling to get used to the fact that you're sort of pinned down by family commitments. So those were very much based on my experiences of living, but the others, however many of them there are, we're not sure. <laughs> we're not sure. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, Liz. <laughs> are very much based on the world that I observe. Yes, exactly. And just things that capture my interest. The book I'm writing at the moment, which comes out next July, I'd actually run out of ideas and I was pan had this panicky two weeks where I just thought, I'm just going to walk. I'm going to go out the house. I'm going to walk until I have an idea. And I walked past... Um, a window on a flat on the Finchley Road that was hoarded. I just suddenly thought, I want to write about a hoarder. And then extrapolating from that, imagining, oh, who lives there? Mm. And what do the, have they got a family? Is there, are there, is there more than one person in that flat? How long have they lived there? Why are they like that? What started it? And so it is, it's often a tiny little starting point of an idea that you just extrapolate out into all these roots and fronds um, until you get the big picture. Mm. Well, that leads on very nicely to my next question, which is, do, do you have a process, or have you had a process in the past for, for writing your novels? What's, I, what's the general timeline of events? So it's the idea yes. and then it's drafting, etc. Yeah, once I get the idea, um, I generally get an idea while I'm writing the work in progress, which is good because then I can just you know, let it ferment and you know, think about it in the shower and get more and more ideas around it. If I don't get an idea until literally I'm supposed to be writing chapter one, <laughs> then I just have to plunge in head first, and which is what I did with Rao's party. I just went for it, which is what I did with this hoarding book because I had to start hmm. and I couldn't just sort of. I'd, I'd spent two weeks walking around, so I had to just sit down and get on with it. There's always an element of plunging in head first, but sometimes you're plunging in head first with a little bit more of an idea of where you're going than others. But generally speaking, I go in with very little when I start writing a book, very little, a character or two, a setting, a problem, um, as you say, a backstory. I love a, a, a very well observed there. I do love a good backstory. Um, and I think there's, it's very important as an author that you know something that the reader doesn't. And you have to keep sort of tantalising with the fact that you know something. Mm. And if you keep reading, you'll, you'll be sort of party to the secret. Mm. So it's always been quite organic. The last... Three, uh, two or three books, I would say, 
I don't know if it's just because I've chosen subjects that are easier to to work with, but I feel like it's been less sort of flailing around, um, having panicky moments and sort of rethinking things. I've kind of gone in and pretty much stuck to the road and got to the end of it without too much in the way of panicking. So maybe I'm just getting better at it. <laughs> <laughs> so how long does it generally take you to complete the first draft? Of um, well, this one, I didn't start it till April and... I'm almost finished, so golly, that's not very long, is it? About six months. <gasps> that sounds. Is that like, a record? That's a record. <laughs> Assuming I have nearly finished it, you never quite know. You no, think, no. oh, I've only got a couple more chapters to go, and then actually it turns out you haven't. Um, but I'm feeling like I've probably only got another month. So that would be a record, yes. Oh, fantastic. Yes. What's the longest it's ever taken you? Was Ralph's Party the longest one? Or was uh, that one a kind of runaway train? Me, yeah, that took me a year, but then I had to spend three months rewriting it, and I'd already spent three months writing the first three, so that was probably about a year and a half. Year and a half yeah. Then I was working part-time as well. The longest, gosh, I really don't know, because obviously sometimes there's been interruptions to sort of have a baby or get married or move house or something. Mm. Yeah, so the fact that this is my, my quickest, that's interesting, isn't it? Very. Yeah, <laughs> I'll be doing two books a year before I know it. <laughs> Your latest book that's actually out now at the moment, Before I Met You, that has a historical parallel story. So we've got one story that's happening in 1995 yeah. and another one that's happening in the early 1920s. Yeah. Now, again, I'm um, putting my status as your number one fan out here, <laughs> to, testing my knowledge. Is this your first yes. historical novel? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The most historical I've got before that was probably like 1981 or something. Yes, um, yeah. going flashbacks. <laughs> going to school day flashbacks and, and what have you. Yeah, um, yeah and it, I didn't set out to do it. Again, that was something that sort of came about organically. Organically. Um, because I'd set out to write a novel set in 1995. I wanted to write about the Britpop years and Soho and about my era. And it just wasn't enough. It was too flibberty gibberty light. It just wasn't wasn't doing it for me. And there wasn't that sense, as we were saying earlier, of me holding something back from the reader. Um, I thought I need there to be a secret. There needs to be a backstory. And we already had the contemporary figure's backstory. Betty, mm. she didn't have any secrets. No. So I looked at the novel as it was and thought I need to do something with Arlette because she had originally just been an old lady who was going to die in the first three chapters and then we weren't going to hear from her again yeah. but I thought no she needs to be the lady with the backstory and because she was so terribly old when she died it meant that her youth was at the beginning of the 1920s mm. so it wasn't like I specifically wanted to write a novel set in 1920 it just happened that that's when she would have been young. And it was a gift. It was just such a lovely time to write about. Um, it was post-war, so I didn't have to worry myself with any of the details of the terrible war, of the Great War. And it was just a, sort of such a positive, bubbly, intense time. Um, a time unlike anything that probably any of us would ever have the fortune to live through. Mm. So it wasn't a deliberate... I didn't deliberately set out to write a historical novel. It just came out that way, and I was very pleased that it did mm. well those sections of the book are incredibly evocative and I won't spoil it for anyone but um I, I found what happened to Arlette Arlette's secret actually really quite shocking yeah and there was a point where I thought oh I'll bet I figured this yeah, out yeah and I'll bet it's this 
and uh, and it didn't happen that way at all. And I was actually really very surprised, surprised. and shocked by by what happened to her. Yes, well, that was another week of me walking around. Yeah, because I knew that people would the reader would think what you thought mm. and I thought no it can't be that way because that's too obvious so I had to spend a week pounding the pavement thinking what could it possibly what other way could it possibly oh this is so tantalizing for someone who hasn't read the book um what other way could it possibly have you know come to be mm. so no oh, it, it was a very very good read I thoroughly good. recommend it listeners <laughs> before I met you but I really enjoyed the 1995 sections as well because I, I love Soho, even yeah. though I find it a bit... It's a confronting part of London for yes, me. Yes, yes. But I, but I do really enjoy being in that part of the city. Yes. Is, is that your old stopping, stomping ground? Um, I, I would say that most of London is my old stomping ground. There's very few bits of London that I haven't stomped over the years. <laughs> um, but Soho, to me, I just used to have this fantasy about living in Soho. I just used to look up at the windows like Betty does in the book, look up at the windows and just think, wow, imagine living there, imagine waking up there. And it was funny because I put her in Soho as a character thinking she was going to love it because it was my personal fantasy. Mm. And she didn't love it and it was almost like I was living it through her mm. and thinking, gosh, actually, if you did live in Soho, there'd be so many downsides to it. That would be noisy for one Yeah, thing. noisy, smelly, uh, crazy. <laughs> But she's only young and yeah, that's the time yeah. to do it, really. Yeah. Do you find that the characters sort of, in your novels, do they sort of take on a life of their own? Yeah. And it's very interesting that you say, yeah, I thought Betty was going to love living in Soho. Yeah. But it turns out you know, Betty had other ideas. Yeah. So have you found yeah. that with a lot of your characters? Always, always. And this is, I'm never sure whether I'm letting the character lead me through their story or if it's because I'm deliberately trying to keep them... Um, genuine and to keep everything that they do absolutely true to their character do you see the difference yeah. and I'm never sure which one it is because sometimes there's a twist or a turn that the story could take but I know the character wouldn't do that and that would just be ridiculous and unlikely and out of character so I'll go a different way hmm. um, so I don't know if that's just me letting the character guide the story or if it's just that's my style of writing hmm. um, so well, they say character is plot, don't yeah. they? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what I love about your characters is they do feel so real. And whenever I'm in a part of London where they live or there's a scene that I remember, it almost feels like I half expect to run into them. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's they are incredibly evocative and they do seem to have a life of their own. I found when I was writing my book, because it is a somewhat autobiographical... I found that I had to stop and be like, no, that's more me, that's yes, not yes, her. Yes, exactly. Um, so I had to work very hard not to make this character just a brunette version of me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, did you do that? The brun- Yes, that's what I did with Jem in Ralph's party. I just thought, if I make her look really absolutely nothing like me, then I'll be less tempted to... Well, exactly. People, her- people yeah. will, will be fooled. They yeah. won't think it's me. But no, I, but I found my character started sort of just saying things that I would say. Yes, and, yeah. um, and she would react the way I would react. And yeah. I'm like, no, that's not her. She's yes. a bit more headstrong than exactly. I am. And, you know, she's got a bit more gumption than I've got or yeah. had, didn't have at that age. You have to keep yes. prodding yourself. Exactly. Yeah. So, I'm, yeah, so I'm just curious. So with the more autobiographical works... Yes, it's harder, Did you it? find it harder? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Definitely I found it harder. Mm. Um, yeah, that's why it's, it's almost more fun in a way to to write something completely from the depths of your imagination rather than from your own experience. So do you find, 
you know, because you've had quite a, a, a long career now, um, you know, you've been going for 13 years, do you find that you've had to sort of refresh your craft in any way? Constantly, every yeah. minute of every day, every time I sit down at my computer, I'm refreshing my craft every day. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you find that, I mean, I'm, I feel like there's... In in my uh, case, there's it feels like there's no accumulated competence really. It's like every time I sit yeah. down to write something new, <laughs> yeah. it doesn't matter what okay. else I've done. Well, if it's, <laughs> if it, you might find it encouraging to to learn that I felt like that for about the first seven or eight books. That's very encouraging. And now, <laughs> I'm finally feeling like I'm learning things and improving. But certainly, my working methods. Hmm. The fact that I finally worked out that the internet's been so insidious. It started off being this, you know, I would work on my word processor and there would be some email there and there'd be a tiny little chunk of internet. And my main enemy to writing was daytime TV. Yeah. And it took me such a long time to realise how insidious the internet was becoming um, and how much of my day it was taking up, you know, especially with social media. And to finally free myself from the internet and take my laptop into a, a Wi-Fi free zone and sit and write like a proper writer. <laughs> Just sit and write words for mm. two hours, three hours has been a remarkable thing and I think it has made the, the actual writing, the physical writing of the book so much easier. The fact that I wrote a thousand words yesterday and I will write a thousand words today and I will write a thousand words tomorrow just gives the book this sort of much more of a you feel much more in control of it it's much more of a steady flow rather than before when I was desperately trying to fight against the internet some days I'd write a hundred words some days I wouldn't write any words so I think it has taken a long time for me to get to this point where I can just write a thousand to fifteen hundred words a day every day and feel the book growing in this really nice calm controlled way mm. so in that way I do feel like I have become more competent as a writer it's taken a long time <laughs> so a lot of it's discipline then by the sounds yes. of it so and I always saw myself because I had been a disciplined writer and so I always seen myself as being a disciplined writer and I just had lost sight of the fact that I was no longer a disciplined writer and I was actually completely out of control writer and doing this crazy sort of almost a pro plus thing you know as a deadline loomed and sort of staying up all night with wine and things um <laughs> And to, for the last three books, it has just been this lovely, as I say, this very calm event of just, okay, it's around about my deadline and I've finished. Mm. And it's not two o'clock in the morning and I'm not crazy and I'm not in tears. It's just, <laughs> it's just all calm because I've worked out how to write a book without freaking out. Without freaking out. <laughs> yeah. So your method is disengage yeah. from the internet. Yes go somewhere yes. where you won't be interrupted because obviously you've got a young family as well yeah, well, so. yeah they're at school as well now which helps mm. but I've compartmentalised my life rather than trying to do it all in the same place at the same time I spend my time at home in which I can do all that stuff that writers find really you know annoying like you know the temptations of emptying the dishwasher and putting a wash through and the temptations of the internet I do all that I do my surfing the internet tidying the house um, and then I go to the gym because a, a writer has to exercise. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely <laughs> vital. Um, and then I've got my writing time, which is completely separate. It has nothing to do with anything else apart from writing, mm. which is so important, I think. Like they used to in the olden days, you know, with a <laughs> With quill. a quill. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so 
maybe describe a typical day for us. Uh, well, they're very typical. I can do that very easily because <laughs> my days are so typical that I drop my girls off at school at nine o'clock. I go to Waitrose. I come home. I tidy the house. I sit at my computer for an hour or two, reply to emails, um, buy stuff, whatever it is I want to do. Guilt-free because I know I'm not supposed to be writing, which is just such a joy. Yeah. Um, and then I put my laptop in a shoulder bag and I go off to my gym. Um, I do my workout. I go to the cafe outside my gym. I open up my laptop and I work until it's time to collect children from school. And that's my day. And it's very neat and it's very ordered and it's lovely. In essence, my working day is two hours. But I do consider everything else to be part of that. I, you know, Answering emails and exercising, frankly, is part of it. But, but the actual, you know, nuts and bolts of writing a book, I do it in two hours a day. It's amazing what you can do when you actually do just exactly. put your head down. Because, I mean, the danger is if you spend all day in front of the computer, you feel like you've yeah. worked and you've written all yeah. day, but actually all you've done is surf the net and exactly. look at emails and look at Facebook and all the rest of it. Yes. I mean, that's the danger yes. for me. But I'm finding that getting out of the house is... You know, you're far more productive in two hours at Nero than I am in eight hours at home because you just see things that need doing. Yes. And you just think, oh, yeah, I'll just play one game of online travel or one game of song pop and turns into eight games and you start challenging random people. Oh, it's awful. Oh, this is all research for the book. No, it's not. (laughs) I honestly, I would say to anybody who wants to write a book, don't do it at home or don't do it where you've got access to the internet. It's just a devil. Yeah. So, thinking of writing as a job yeah. obviously really helps as yes, well. Yes, yes. It's a lovely it, job. It's a lovely job. It's a really lovely um, job. But, but it is hard work, isn't it? Um, the actual, now that I've worked out, you know, how to write without it being a total nightmare, and I've done, the, the last couple of books I say have kind of written themselves in a way, they've been really nice books to write. I, th- I think the, the hardest thing for me is the reception yeah, that's really tough. I don't think I don't think anyone who hasn't published a book could understand what it feels like to put a bit of yourself out there, something that's taken you a year or six months now, um, <laughs> of your life to work on, and putting it out there, and just knowing that anyone can just sort of, you know, yeah. say what they like about it or think what they like about it or form opinions about you. I find that really tough. Mm. that people form opinions about you as a person rather than as a writer from reading one of your books and yeah. people can be quite nasty so I find that quite hard um, I, that doesn't get any easier and in fact it gets worse because the internet is becoming more and more populated by people with very strong opinions and not very good vocabulary and so that's quite hard and, the, and yes just the pressure of coming up with something something that you want to write about for mm. a year once, once you know what you're doing it's good it's knowing what you know finding the thing that you want to do is quite scary you know as I say I did have a bit of a scary scary moment earlier this year yeah I've not got any ideas at all <laughs> <laughs> so how how do you cope with the the scarier aspects of being a published writer and a, and a popular published writer oh, you just get on with it just get on with it yeah you, is your strategy like I, I don't read reviews oh no I read all of them oh. I read all of them and then have to spend 48 hours resisting the temptation to reply or <laughs> you know I read all of them and you know the good ones are obviously fantastic yeah. but the bad ones really hurt they really do well, of, course. of course I don't mind the ones where they go oh you know 
I couldn't even finish this. It was so boring, and I've just I've given it to a charity shop. That's fine. It's the ones where they really start where analyzing they tear into you, us and, and yeah. yes, and and suggesting that you shouldn't be writing about topics like that because you're not a good enough writer. Do you know that sort of thing? I find really, really hard to deal with. But um, no, you just just have to. There's very few downsides to what I do, so I can't mm. really complain. It's pretty much all good. Well, that's that's good too. Yeah. <laughs> So that it just seems like there's a lot more competition and not enough money yeah. and places on a publisher's yeah. list to go around. Oh, no. it's. I mean, I feel like a bit of a dinosaur, the fact that I'm still on, you know, two or three book contracts and, uh, you know, my publishers are prepared to pay me, you know, a decent amount of money to write a book. Um, but you've and they're not yourself. they're not asking me to write under a pseudonym. They're not asking me to write mini books. They're not asking me to do anything apart from write a book a year. And that is that's the dream. That's on the wane. That mm. is on the wane. Yeah. That way of doing things, and it might not be the case for me for much longer. So I'm sort of clinging on to this old style. Yeah. You know, someone gives me some money, I write a book. <laughs> um, way of doing things I'm clinging on to it for dear life because I don't know what's on the other side of it it's quite scary and for someone coming in as a new writer I mean that's the thing the rewards are still out there They're and they there. are hmm. the rewards are if anything better than they were before because a, a big book in a market which is you know diminishing can do so well Mm. and I think also um, publishers have a much keener eye now and are much more able to pick out the the, the glittering gems there was a a long time in publishing where anything that looked or smelt like something that had done well would be out there with a cheap jacket on it and you know and that doesn't happen anymore so if a publisher or an agent picks up a gem they treat it like a gem and it gets the full works and so there are still some amazing opportunities out there, but it's um, so it's a lot tougher. Yeah, you've got to work a bit harder to yes. get your foot in the door. Yes, I your think. book's got to be brilliant. You know, it really yeah. does have to be, or something obviously like Fifty Shades of Grey, something new, something, something that new. people, the publishers didn't realise people wanted until they got it. Um, you know, it's sort of the, the gap in the market. Mm. So it's either got to be something that people have an appetite for, or it's got to be absolutely brilliant. Mm. Um, you know, it's a bit like the Shopaholic books. You know, yeah. What a genius moment that was for for um for Maddie when she suddenly thought, I know, yes, <laughs> I'm going to write a book about a Shopaholic because it's something that people wanted to read about yeah. again with the Fifty Shades. Mm. So it's it is tough, but I definitely I would I don't think anybody should not be writing books because it's tough because there's still a there's still rewards out there. Well, exactly, and I mean if you think about it, every industry is tough, and yes. in every industry you have to prove yourself. Yeah. And I would like to think that I mean it's, there's this wonderful line in one of my favourite movies, um, Frida, where the young Frida Kahlo goes to Diego Rivera, the painter, and asks for his opinion on her very early work and Diego's just you know very brash and gruff and says well what do you care about my opinion for if you're a true artist you will paint because you can't live without it you will paint until you die and what I have to say should have no bearing whatsoever yes but Frida of course is very pragmatic and very realistic and she's like well I've got to have a job. I've got yeah. to earn a living somehow, and if I'm not good enough, I need to think of something else to do. Yeah. Um, but but it's that line that that um, Diego says. It's a wonderful film, listeners. I do recommend Frida, which has Salma Hayek and um, Alfred Molina in brilliant film. 
but it was that line that stays with me a lot because I mean yeah. you you can't be it, it's it's very hard work and you've got to give up a lot of your yes. life um, and a lot of yourself as as you say you put a piece of yourself in yeah. into every book. I it, would say though, given the X Factor, you know, culture, it would be very uh, important to have someone tell you you're good. Yes. Because you see these people on the X Factor who say, "This is my life. This is all I want to do," and they can't sing. Um, it's and tragic. God love isn't it? them. God love them. But I always feel like those judges are doing them a favour when they say, "Listen, do something else. You can't sing." Yeah. And they're right. Hmm. And I think if you are writing, you need someone. Not your mum, obviously. No, you need <laughs> but someone. But you need something to back you up. Yes. So it's not just you. You're not doing all that, you know. Exactly. I mean, if you're just writing it for you, fine, different story. Fine. But if you but actually if you want, want to put to it out you. there, you know, as, as a singer does when they turn up on the X Factor, if you want to put it out there, you have to be sure that you are good enough. That you're good enough. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So that's why starting a blog was a very good thing for yes, me very good way into writing um, a very good way i mean it's i've been doing it for seven years now wow and you know so in 2005 it was all just you know bright pink backgrounds and very basic <laughs> long rambling sidebars and uh you know i didn't know what i was doing i was 23 24 and just didn't know the meaning of the word discretion and didn't actually appreciate that people all over the world could be reading it yes and yes People I knew could be reading yeah. it or not, as the case was. <laughs> uh, I even kept it a secret from my family because the internet was still a bit weird back then. Mysterious. It was yeah. all like, you know, why would you keep an online journal? Yeah. You know, that's the sort of thing weirdos do. Yeah, it um, shows, doesn't it, just how much we've un- unpeeled ourselves and sort of bared ourselves on the internet yeah. to become such a... I think the world has changed. Naked a, a place lot. now, isn't it? <laughs> Very, but as you say, it's, it's provided a platform for a lot of people and I, I, I think the crazy people have always been out there yeah. but we just haven't always been able to hear them exactly. and, and now we can and as you say sometimes that can be a bit confronting and a bit yeah. disconcerting because you know nobody lives in a bubble and thinks oh yes everybody loves me yeah. and isn't the world great of course there's people out there who don't like you exactly but if I was walking down the street would they say it to your face no they wouldn't of course they would they'd wouldn't. say oh no. that's that woman who wrote that book that I didn't like reading last week and they'd walk on by Just, me exactly. they wouldn't tap me on the shoulder and say listen I read your book last week it was rubbish yes exactly you clearly think you're something special and you're not <laughs> And that's the thing, isn't it? No, exactly. But, I mean, a, a lot of it's just jealousy, really. Yeah. Because, I mean, if writing a book was easy, everybody would do Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And that's probably everybody thinks they can do it. So. so what would be your advice to a new writer or somebody wanting to, to be a part of all of this scene who's got a novel and wants to get it out there and hasn't got a yeah. clue how to do it? Well, I would first of all say get someone to read it, get some feedback from someone who can be objective with you um there's absolutely no point in going to all that effort of uh, contacting agents um if what you have in your hands is unpublishable or could be publishable if it had some more work put into it if you still feel um having had some feedback that you would like to put it out there then there's the the trusty old writers and artists yearbook. It's the only way to do it. I mean, it's probably on the internet by now. I don't know if you have to go out and buy the massive book that I had to buy. Well, my husband got me the book (laughs) for Christmas, so it is still out there. And it's just a list of all the agents um, in in the country, and you can 
see um, from their descriptions what sort of authors they feature, what sort of work they're looking for, and then you send them your first three chapters and a synopsis and a little letter about yourself and send it out to two or three people and see what they say. I would say a very important thing to do is to take on board any feedback you got because I got some feedback when I sent out Ralph's party from one of the agents who rejected me and I completely changed the book based on what she said. Mm. Um, so if anybody takes the time to give you some feedback from within the industry, take it on board. Mm. These people know what they're talking about. Yeah. And I think, I think if you genuinely believe that your book is publishable, you just have to grow a thick skin and just get on with it. Just keep sending it out there. Keep reworking it if you think it should be reworked. Keep finessing it. Take rejections as they are meant, which is generally, it, as I say, if your book is publishable. They haven't got room for you. They can't take you on. It doesn't necessarily mean that your book is rubbish. It just means that for them personally, they can't do it. So just, it's a numbers game and mm. just keep getting it out there. Um, my friend Yasmin, who was right at the beginning of this podcast, mentioned right at the beginning of this podcast, inspired by my own success, wrote her own novel um, and went back to Australia in the meantime. So left me the three chapters um, <laughs> and some stamps. And I sent those three chapters out for her to about 30 agents. And I've got rejection letter after rejection letter and then the 30th agent wrote back and she was half crazed with enthusiasm she was almost frothing at the mouth this agent because wow. she loved it so much and she got Yasmin a publishing deal and it was published so this is this is the key is to just play it as a numbers game it only takes one person to love it and then everything can fall into can place yes mm. and don't give up yeah don't if you genuinely feel and you're not deluded and you're not mad <laughs> that what you have in your hands is is publishable and could, could it doesn't necessarily have to be bestseller material but is publishable and people out there would want to read it then don't give up absolutely if you're getting lots of feedback saying this is not publishable then you have to listen to that hmm. you know you have to you have to stay realistic but definitely if it's good someone somewhere is going to publish it for you hmm. hold tight to the dream yes definitely Definitely. So what is next for you? You've got your next book coming out next July. July. Yes, the book about the hoarder, which has no title as yet. Um, and then, thank goodness, I do already have an idea for my 11th, 12th, 13th novel, whichever one it is. Uh, we will figure it out. Uh, we yeah, will put yeah. it on the website <laughs> so everybody knows. Um, so I do already have an idea for, for the next book. Um, I even have a title for it. So that's good. So I can hit the ground running with that. Um when I finish this, um, I don't have anything else. I don't have anything else um, bubbling away in the background. It's for me at the moment. It's literally just a book, then a book, then a book. Um, but keep enjoying life and participating in it because that, yes. it sounds like that's where a lot of your absolutely stories come from. Yes, yes, absolutely. And finally, I know that this is a horrible question to ask because it's like asking. Do you have a favourite child? Mm -hmm. But uh, which of your books is do you, do you have a soft spot for? I have a huge soft spot for Vincent Joy for a number of reasons. Number one, I just think it's a really nice book. And number two, I started writing it when I was pregnant with my first child and it was a really scary time for me because I couldn't, I couldn't imagine life with a child full stop but I certainly couldn't imagine how I was going to manage to still be a writer after I'd had a child. So I started writing it while I was pregnant and then put it away. And then when my baby was three months old, I went back to it. 
can I finish it? And, I, and at that point, I only had you know, about an hour a day to write. And so it just felt like such a huge achievement. It was just such a reassuring thing that mm. I'd, my whole life had changed overnight, yet I could still do the thing that I do and do it well. And, yeah, so I've, I, yeah, I have a very soft spot for that book. It is definitely my favourite. I'm very happy to say that without offending any of my other books. <laughs> <laughs> Lisa Jewell, thank you very much for being with me. Thank you for today. Pleasure. That was Lisa Jewell, author of Before I Met You, The Making of Us and eight other novels. Yes, after all our wondering and hypothesising in the chat, Lisa is the author of 10 published novels, 11 novels if you include the one that will be out next July, which I am certainly looking forward to. Uh, all the details of Lisa's books are on the Bookends website, which is www.bookendspodcast.wordpress.com and also all the other books and authors she mentioned, if you're interested. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Bookends. Thank you very much for listening. And thanks once again to Lisa Jewell for having me round for tea. Next week, internationally acclaimed poet and fellow Tasmanian Ivy Alvarez will be my guest. She'll be sharing her thoughts on the writing life and process. So I hope very much that you'll join us for that. Bye for now. Bye.